G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Reading there in uh, the book of Acts, um, full of action, but long nonetheless. Before we um, dive right into that and begin our new series in the book of Acts, uh, I'd like to just begin with this um, Uh, this thought, reflection, this memory actually. I I think it was the first congregational meeting that I'd ever been to, uh, in the first church that I'd ever, um, you know, regularly attended. It was in my teens. It must have been the first ministry uh, that I cared about that appeared to be on the chopping block in this particular congregational meeting. Um, We'd already heard the financial report and we knew where the expenses were, And in their particular model of um, uh, church giving and ministry funding, each of the ministries was funded through special collections. That's the way it worked back then, or at least that's the way I sort of understood it to have been working. So on on one one Sunday, for example, um, or across several Sundays, probably more likely, the collection might be for the Sunday school. Uh, They'd have an appeal for the Sunday school. And that way, uh, the funding would be made available uh, across the course of the year to fund the Sunday school ministry and uh, on another Sunday they'd have an appeal for the deacons fund and on another Sunday they'd have and, and on it would go uh, and for the most part the system seemed to work quite well at least from my vantage point if the ministry needed more money um, then they'd have more appeals through the year and you could see it reflected in the figures the congregation clearly believed in the different ministries uh, and um, voted so to speak through the year with their wallets uh, the Lord had provided Um, again and again, all except for one ministry, which had a glaringly obvious shortfall, and you guessed which one it was, given my age at the time and that I actually cared about it, it was the youth group, where the figures uh, showed a yawning chasm, you see, between the funds donated and the actual expenditure. Uh, And keep in mind, I was there in my late teens, and so I I very much had skin in the game, I cared about the outcome of this conversation which then unfolded and you can probably guess those of you who have been in a few church congregational meetings um, how it might have been put how the question might have been put um, by a uh, a dear member I actually don't remember who it was um, those of you who may well have been present at that very meeting Um, anyway they asked something like this or at least this is my recollection of it they said something like this I've always believed that if an initiative is of the Lord then the Lord will provide. Now, I'm sure all of those involved with the youth mean well and are sincerely trying their best, but surely we need to take this shortfall seriously. So this was the line of argument. And see that it may be time to reevaluate our ministry priorities for who are we to expect the Lord to bless that which he hasn't provided for? Now, you may not agree with it, but you can follow the logic, can't you? Um, and uh, stepping to one side, aren't there times in life where we ponder exactly that kind of conundrum in all sorts of spheres of our own lives? If this is really what God would have me do, if this is the initiative that God would have me pursue, then gosh, I'd have thought that he would have provided for it. I'd have expected it to come easier by now. Uh, that, that we might have enjoyed some lucky breaks along the way. See, what do the setbacks say about whether this thing that I'm involved in, in whatever sphere of life, is blessed by the Lord and intended by Him? 
Uh, sometimes when we sincerely give ourselves to something, some, it might be a ministry or it might be a person that we're caring for and investing in, it might be some cause that we've given, it might be our career, our very career, some project, some house, some financial commitment that we've made. For a while there, we counted it an, an appointment of the Lord. But to sort of mix my metaphors a bit, a very short time later, it seems that the planets are no longer aligned. Uh, the universe appears to be telling us something altogether different now. Have we lost our way? Is it time to cut this thing loose, whatever it is? What is the difference, after all, between being a quitter and being a shrewd reader of circumstance? It's not all straightforward, is it, brothers and sisters? How do I figure out whether God's plan for my life means to stick at something or is it time to step away? Um, so, brothers and sisters, from now until um, Christmas time, or indeed for as, as long as I'm with you, um, uh, we're going to be stepping into the book of Acts, and from chapter 15 onwards through to chapter 20, God willing. And we join the story immediately after there's been this real wave, this big swell uh, of uh, enthusiasm and momentum that's carried the gospel mission. Uh, uh, out across the Mediterranean into the known world. The spirit of unity and togetherness has been at something of a climax. Things are great. Paul and Barnabas have just met with the Jerusalem Council earlier in chapter 15 uh, and the, the apostles there and their united consensus is now being preached into the churches uh, coming out from Jerusalem and in uh, Antioch particularly. We have this image before us of unity in action and the great wheels uh, are moving and the great leaders are preaching and working and great things are happening. But little did they know and scarcely could they see it coming, chapter 15, verse 36 and following, that the engine is about to falter and the warning lights are just starting to flick on. Friends, as we face an uncertain season of life ahead as a church. How do we discern the will of the Lord? No, how do we pursue the will of the Lord even when momentum falters or when the path proves a little more painful or precarious or when things just aren't as simple or as certain as we might hope? Shall we pray as we come to Acts 15 and 16? Our Father God in heaven, uh, you are faithful. You are a covenant-keeping God whose word is true and reliable and dependable. You are the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You are our rock of ages. Father, your faithfulness has not wavered. You have not grown weary with the years. But Lord, our lives are for but a moment. We are like the grass of the field or the blossoms of spring. And we have not the benefit or the, or the burden of your grand view of all things. Father God, may we learn this morning from your word to more happily hold together your sovereign purpose and our small place in the world. But Father, may, may that not be a thing of heaviness or sourness on our part that we don't get the grand view. But may we learn to better reconcile your great saving and loving and good plans with the choices and decisions and efforts and struggle that we have before us, each of us in our own lives, with joy in Christ. And we ask for your help in that, please. In Christ's name. Amen. Uh, those of you who know Acts will, uh, <laughs> you'll know that 
let me be clear, Paul and the apostles, they've faced all sorts of difficulty up to this point in Acts. Uh, staunch, even fierce opposition, Stephen, by this point, has been martyred. James, as in the brother of John, has been martyred. Paul has been physically beaten up and even left for dead outside the city. They thought he was dead, they thought, and they just left him there. That was only a few chapters ago. Uh, but from chapter 15, um, their enthusiasm, it looks really buoyant. So that's where we are in the narrative. Uh, I do wonder, though, if the cracks just begin to appear from verse 36, and the doubt just starts to creep in. Even Luke... Um, Luke wrote the book of Acts, he wrote the Gospel of Luke and then he wrote the book of Acts, the sequel. Um, and even Luke seems to almost feel the need to have to explain for Paul in the conflict there between Paul and Barnabas. Uh, perhaps that uh, Paul was a little less gracious than he might. See, the cracks are starting to appear. Um, and so here, what I'd like to share with us this morning, we, we're shown, I think, across this passage, three patterns of behaviour to put into practice when progress appears to be impeded, the progress of the gospel. Three patterns of behaviour to put into practice when the progress of the gospel seems to be impeded. And those three patterns are these, pragmatic partnerships, pliable pursuit of his purpose and persistence in proclamation. I'll say them again on the way through. Uh, but let me say clearly, I'm not going to pretend and much less attempt to magic away uh, the uncertainties... Uh, the seasons of not knowing and not being clear, the uh, fears that are connected with that, but these patterns, I think, these patterns of behaviour that we see in the apostolic ministry here, they reveal how to get on with the cause of Christ when the sea does get bumpy and things do grow uncertain. Firstly, pragmatic partnerships. Uh, we pick it up from chapter 15, verse 36. Have you ever had a falling out with a very close friend? A difference of opinion where you really had to go your separate ways uh, and it, things took you off in different directions altogether. Please note this, Barnabas, um, we probably, we, uh, the, Paul is such a household name, right? The Apostle Paul, we know Paul, but Barnabas in context, Barnabas was a giant uh, we need, in, in the early church. We need to, he may not have been a, a, a strict apostle, but Barnabas, Barnabas was the one who believed in Paul when everyone else thought he was probably playing a game with the early Christians, playing a trick on them to catch them, expose them, perhaps even have the early Christians killed. It was Barnabas who believed in Paul and let Paul in and drew him in to meet with the apostles and things obviously uh, went from there. So Paul owed much to Barnabas. From verse 36, let's read. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul didn't think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia, you can read about that back in chapter 13, and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And by the way, the end of verse uh, 40 there, I think the meaning there is that both groups, both, uh, Barnabas and Mark and Paul and Silas, both were commended by the believers. And off they went in their separate directions. Um, Ken Sandy, I've mentioned him a few times over the years. Ken Sandy wrote an excellent book on how to handle conflict. 
perhaps you've read it. I'd really encourage you to actually, if, if uh, handling conflict is a significant thing in your life, that's all of us. Um, anyway, um, uh, Ken Sandy. So it's called The Peacemaker. And he warns us against two equal and opposite mistakes on either end of the spectrum when it comes to uh, conflict. Perhaps you tend toward one side or the other. On the one end uh, of the spectrum is the hothead, right? And Sandy calls them the peace breaker. Uh, we've all met them, haven't we? The hothead, the peace breaker. And uh, reading between the lines here in Acts, I think we wonder if that's what's going on here. Paul and Barnabas, they cannot agree, so they create their own little factions and they storm off in opposite uh, routes around the Mediterranean. On the other end of uh, Sandy's spectrum, uh, there are the peace fakers. So there are peace breakers and there are the peace fakers. And these ones are less obvious, but we know them too, don't we? Are you someone who responds to conflict, uh, not by aggression, but with absorption? You smooth it over at all costs. It's not that you deal with the issues, you just internalise them and it chews you up inside. Uh, so if you had your way, either Paul or Barnabas, or probably preferably both, they would apologise for ever having raised their doubts or voicing their resistance, but would inwardly then go and carry that load of, and perhaps even resentment for the rest of the entire missionary journey ahead. Are you someone like that? Uh, friends, I'm not here to make out that Paul or Barnabas, that either of them did things perfectly, uh, they are both mere men, even though Paul was an apostle of the Lord Jesus, he was a mere man, he was a sinner. Uh, but I will say this, rather than a conflict that led to division and distraction at a fundamental level, I see here two pragmatic partnerships that then go on to multiply the mission. Isn't that what's in front of us? It might be regrettable that they came to a difference of opinion. They may not have been able to resolve it, but have a look at how they handled the outcome and what that says about their priorities and how they live. Um, too often when there's a conflict in ministry, it results in fewer people doing ministry and less cooperation. And, and okay, Paul and Barnabas, they disagreed over Mark's trustworthiness. Um, it turns out, by the way, that Paul was wrong. Uh, we know that because Paul mentions Barnabas and Mark in a favourable light and as his beloved companions at later points in his writings. And that's wonderful, isn't it? Uh, but too often we see a difference of opinion on a ministry team or we see a disagreement over uh, who should be doing what. And have you seen this before? The result is this loss of momentum. This distraction from the mission, uh, a couple of bruised egos who are then very suspicious of letting anyone else in. But I think we see here precisely the opposite. Both parties set off straight away, commended by the brothers. Both are driven towards ministry, not away from it. And Paul, at least, doesn't limit his little team to the underlings that he can control, he's adding to his team before we know it. Have a look at chapter 16, verse 1. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. 
Paul wanted to take him along on the journey and so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area for they all knew his father was a Greek. As they travelled from town to town, they delivered the decisions of the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Brothers and sisters, conflicts are normal. But disagreements are survivable. Will we respond to them with a desire to multiply pragmatic partnerships that pursue the mission? There's a principle when things get bumpy and uncertain. But it's not only the interpersonal, secondly, moving on, it's not only the interpersonal, the conflict amongst brothers and sisters, where things can get bumpy, but even the supernatural, as we're about to see. Because secondly, will we be pliable, that is to say flexible, pliable in the pursuit of his purpose, or will we rigidly pursue our own agenda? from verse 6 of Acts chapter 16. Paul and his companions travelled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. It doesn't tell us exactly how that keeping from happened. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. It doesn't explain to us exactly how. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Just a quick side note, did you notice? Where's Luke now? He's with them. Did you see the switch in pronouns from they to we? We got ready, verse 11, from Troas, we put out to sea. That's interesting, isn't it? There's Luke right with them. We put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day we went to Neapolis, we're in Macedonia now. From there we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath day we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. Now, in this COVID era, where it's jolly difficult to get anywhere, let alone uh, put together a string of place names for a holiday, uh, I think this sounds all very exotic. We go, wow, look at all the places that they got to go. Wouldn't that be nice? Bit of a holiday through parts of Turkey and across the Aegean Sea. It sounds perfectly delightful. Uh, Could could I instead summarise summarise it like this? Because I think the connotation is a bit, bit different. When you look at it on a map, Right, you've got Paul and Silas and Timothy and doubtless others with them, this newly formed missionary team with so much promise and potential and and power. Um, For some reason, what's happening is they're being hedged and hemmed and like herded away from and kept apart from all the cities where you'd expect them to go. God, why would you do that? See, they want to go west, they want to go into Roman Asia. God says no. Northwest and leave them alone. They want to go to Bithynia. God says no. But you can pass through Troas, just Troas. Yes, finally we get a positive indication, a clear direction, a vision. Paul, go to Macedonia. At least he thinks it's a vision from the Lord. That's their best understanding of it. 
But they go into Macedonia, and what is our missionary band, our expert crack team, what do they find there? It seems Philippi, this leading city of the region, couldn't even string together 10 faithful Jewish men, which is what you needed to be able to have a synagogue. I could be wrong, but I wonder if we're supposed to sort of sink with something of that disappointment that we experience when a ministry that has been talked up and talked up and talked up and then no one actually comes along. Or the crowds don't show. The seats are all, well, they're nearly empty. God, why did you lead us here? Wait a second, God, did you lead us here? If Paul had pursued his own purpose, what I'm saying is his own potential, his own publicity, you can be sure he would not have been chained in a jail cell in Philippi by the end of Acts chapter 16. He'd have been preaching in the synagogues in the city squares of Asia, Colossae, uh, Ephesus, Laodicea. Um, David Peterson, the Australian um, New Testament expert, uh, he makes this comment, which I hope is helpful for us. He says, we cannot expect the regular guidance of visions and prophecies in our everyday decision-making. But we are encouraged by Luke's narrative to believe in God's sovereign overruling and intervention to direct the progress of his word and his people where necessary. Meanwhile, the norm that is suggested by Acts is the taking of initiatives for the gospel with wise planning and a loving concern for those we seek to reach, trusting God to open or close the way as he sees best. I do think that's helpful, actually. Wise planning, taking initiative, loving concern, trusting God. Is that how we deal with low numbers and disappointing outcomes and, and frustrating impositions from time to time that we have to endure? No. God wants me here. There's no synagogue. It's not the city squares of Asia. I can't find a single faithful Jewish fella. And yet, what do we read from verse 13? On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptised, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Now, up until that point, you might have said, this is going terribly, but you'd take those results, wouldn't you? Day one, a household of new believers, baptised into the kingdom. Why? Because, verse 14, the Lord opened her heart. And thirdly, so what, what patterns should we practice when uh, gospel progress seems impeded? We've got pragmatic partnerships. We've got a pliable pursuit of his purpose. And thirdly, persistence in proclaiming. Persistence in proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Now, I didn't tell you what happened uh, at that AGM, did I? I didn't tell you the outcome so here was the, the spirit of the question. It wasn't really a question, it was more of a comment. It was a suggestion, wasn't it? Fairly firm one, really. If youth ministry has such a shortfall, then oughtn't, oughtn't we see that as the Lord withdrawing his provision and so reallocate our efforts elsewhere? 
That was the spirit of the question. Now, thank God, eventually someone, I don't even remember who, uh, who was involved in the finances piped up, and I'm glad that they did. Why were there hundreds or even thousands, I can't remember, in youth-related expenses, but only tens or barely hundreds in offerings for it? The answer was actually very simple. The appeal for youth ministry hadn't even happened yet. It was a wonder there was any money in the youth ministry allocation. It was because people had specifically put it in there because they believed in it. So in their offering system, the, the week for youth ministry was sort of out of whack with the, with the, uh, with the AGM, effectively, with the, the um, financial year and how that was all counted. It was a simple muddle of the calendar. And lo and behold, when the appeal came, the funding flowed freely. But in those anxious intervening weeks, the youth ministry got on with teaching young people, like me, about the gospel of Jesus. And I'm glad they did. So Paul and Silas, what do they do? They relieve the slave girl of this spirit or this demon, this spiritual being who knows exactly who they serve and seems set upon frustrating their preaching. Then verse 19, when her owners realised that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. Now just pause for a moment there. Can you picture the scene? It's almost absurd in its delightfulness. Their feet are in stocks, they're jailed for a crime no greater than denying those slave masters the, the, the power of wringing money out of this young girl, praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Now, I'd argue that we don't need to read on to see persistence in proclaiming Christ, do we? It's right there, even from the jail cell. And I think that's because Paul and Silas remember what I all too often forget. Because I'm not sure I'd be singing at midnight. I, I say this to my shame, I get grumpy or discouraged or distracted by, just, by enormous setbacks, like running a few minutes late or the, the things being messy, I can't possibly concentrate, can't you keep it down? I think Paul and Silas remember what I forget, that Christ was the one who put perseverance into practice when progress was impeded. It's not poor little us striving to save the world if only they'd let us. Christ was impeded by the Jews and their plots and Judas and his betrayal and Pilate and his spineless power plays and his, even his disciples deserting him. It was Christ who was pliant to his Father's purpose, pragmatic when things got prickly, persistent in proclaiming a path out of the spiritual prison that we can't even see that we're trapped in. So if we find ourselves bruised and imprisoned, 
Well, their minds, Paul's and Silas's, they go to Christ, do you see? And when perhaps we think he is the farthest away and furthest from helping us, he's right there, verse 26. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. That would have been his punishment if they had, you understand. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. When they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house, sorry, then they did that. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptised. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Brothers and sisters, were the purposes of God left to the plans of his people? Then I don't reckon that Philippi would have had two new households of believers and the beginnings of a church in that city. I think they'd still have a pagan jailer I think they'd still have a God-fearing but a traitor in purple who didn't yet know Jesus. The purpose of our God took the Lord Jesus to his cross and led his disciples into conflict. Where will the purposes of God lead us? Where will the purposes of God lead us? Into days of ease and simplicity? and times of unity and action and momentum and and motion, and perhaps in those days come and they're great. But when the engine falters and the warning lights flash, may we not only proclaim Christ, but may we practice his ways. Let's pray. Our Father God in heaven, Uh, We confess that the stories in Acts, they seem almost otherworldly to us at times. Stories of uh, such conflict and with like floggings and just self-interested meanness. Uh, We dress up the unimpressive pictures of a few people huddled in prayer uh, in this almost romantic light. Uh, when we read it in the book of Acts, but then we feel the disappointments and discouragements in our own day as huge setbacks and perhaps even evidence that you're not really working amongst us after all. Father God in heaven, would you please bless us with a patient and a persistent and a pliable pursuit of your purposes, the proclamation of Christ to those around us for his glory and for their good. Lord, may we remember Jesus And may we be content to take up our cross and to sing, so to speak, to sing in the jails at at midnight. Lord, we see here a wealthy woman with power and influence. We see a slave girl exploited and alone. We see a desperate man in a desperate moment. May Christ be the answer that we hold out to every kind of people that we meet in every circumstance. So would you prepare hearts for him, please. In Jesus' name. Amen.